Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Uh, it's my privilege to be with you on this special Sunday as I represent uh, Cornerstone Church in Annandale. Uh, we rejoice with you on this day. I begin with Psalm 105. As we prepare to pray, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and his judgments he's pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. As we celebrate this uh, anniversary on Redemption Hill, a, a passage from 1 Samuel came to my mind. Uh, Samuel calls the Israelites to repentance and admits by the people fasted and confessed their sins and Samuel cried out to the Lord on, on their behalf and the Lord heard his prayer and Israel won a great victory over the Philistines. And then we read this. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Samuel named that stone Ebenezer. That's Hebrew for stone of help. And that even Ebenezer was a rock of remembrance. It was a souvenir of that great victory at Mitzvah. It was a time to remember the gracious acts of mercy in the life of the nation. They were not to forget God's faithfulness to them. Thus far has the Lord helped us. I want that to be the theme of our prayer this morning as we come before the Lord on this 10th anniversary celebration. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, today we remember what you have done to create, to protect, to preserve, and to prosper this church over these last 10 years. We thank you, Lord, as we call to mind the, the courage of Bill and Alyssa to step out in faith and to begin this work. We thank you, Lord, as we call to mind the fact that for 10 years you have been worshiped, your gospel has been proclaimed through this church in this community. We thank you, Lord, as we call to mind the blessing of God that has come to many who've been a part of this body of believers over these years. We thank you, Lord, as we call to mind the many ways that God has used this church to further his kingdom both near and far. Unbelievers have heard the gospel and come to new life in Christ. Christians have been discipled and have grown in their faith here, and many have gone to other places to serve you. New churches in Ireland and Mexico have been launched and nurtured through the support of this church. We remember, Lord, and we rejoice the spiritual fruit that you have brought forth. It hasn't all been easy. There have been struggles, there have been challenges, but you have been faithful. And we affirm today, as we think of that Ebenezer, that rock of help, thus far has the Lord helped us. Lord, we think that like the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt and, and saw the parting of the Red Sea, and then three days later grumbled against Moses, we too easily forget what you've done for us. 
our hearts wander away. Sometimes they get hardened because we fail to remember, we fail to bring to mind your goodness in the past. Lord, help us to remember what you've done. And above all else, help us to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, that wonderful message of grace and truth. For in the cross, Lord, you reveal the truth of your holiness and your wrath against sin. And in the cross, you reveal the grace of your love as you take that wrath upon yourself and redeem us as your own precious possession. And in the glorious resurrection of your Son, he has gained victory for us over sin and death. He's become the firstborn of a new creation. And in him, we are delivered from the dominion of darkness and are brought into the glorious light of his kingdom. Lord, you call us to remember that precious gospel every week as we gather. And for that reason, Jesus gave us not a rock, but a meal, the Lord's Supper. And the bread we call to mind, his body given for us. And the cup sets before us his blood, and his blood shed for us. And, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Oh, Lord, may we remember well. Lord, may we remember what you've done in and through your son. And remember what you've done in and through Redemption Hill Church. You have raised up this church to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You declare that this church is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in and among them. They're God's flock for whom Christ shed his blood. They are the body of Christ of which he is the head. And as such, they are a visible expression of Christ in the world, a community of grace and truth. And one of the most amazing expressions in the Bible, may they know that they are the precious bride of Christ. As Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Lord, we remember who you are as your people, your church, your bride. And may you continue your adorning work so that Redemption Hill Church may be prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, when Jesus, the bridegroom, returns in glory. And Lord, we confess we're not there yet. We still sin. We need to confess and repent. For Samuel called that stone Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Thus far. Life is a journey, and it's not over. Far from it. There will always be new spiritual battles with sin to fight. So, Lord, we pray that this church may continue to show forth to the world what you, Lord, have already begun to do in Jesus Christ. May they show what it means to live this new life as your new creation in the very midst of this old world that is passing away. Oh, Lord, may this church so live out the gospel that they may commend that gospel to the world. May they display a unity in the gospel that overcomes all differences living in relationships of love toward one another, which demonstrates the world to the world that you have indeed sent your son. Oh Lord, may this church continue to be a gospel-centered community of gospel-centered people who then share their lives and that gospel with the lost world around them. May the Spirit of God 
working through the word of God, continue to shape them into the people of God you call them to be. Oh Lord, so today we remember. We remember what you have done, saying thus far has the Lord helped us. Thus far has the Lord helped us. And I pray that as we remember today, we can trust your promise that you will help us to the end. And we pray all of this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Today, as you've heard mentioned at this point, it is Redemption Hill's 10th anniversary as a church. And um, it's just incredible to me to look back at that and, and humbling. Church planting is a crazy idea. And doing that here in the heart of the nation's capital in what would, we had no idea, but what would become some of the most polarized days of most of our lifetimes, it's crazier still. And along the way, we've seen God's grace in ways that we just couldn't have predicted. I think often because we found ourselves in desperation, needing God's grace more than we could have ever foreseen. And, and really, as we look at the work of God in this church, you are the evidence of his grace and his faithfulness to us. That, that where the seeds of the gospel were planted and watered and the ground was cultivated, that God has brought this growth. And so um, it's been amazing to see that some of you have come to faith in Jesus. We had two people baptized yesterday. Um, others of you have had gospel awakenings that God has, has lit up and enlivened your hearts. Others of you have deepened your understanding of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ along the way and, and why it's so good. And all of those things are things that only the Spirit of God can accomplish within us. And so, Alyssa and I have been so encouraged already this weekend, and by so many of you, and by the outpouring of love and, and, and just kindness from so many of you. And so thank you. I hope all of our hearts are lifted together as we get to worship and set our eyes on Jesus today. Um, I do need to thank, in particular, Sarah Welsh and Jess Mitchell for all that they did to pull off this weekend. Um, and covering all of the details, and, and our staff and leaders have rallied, and it's been so good. So a couple of things, we realize that we don't have any way to tell any of the history of Redemption Hill, and so for those of you that are new, very few of you have been around for all 10 years, um, but just a few things that we have highlighted through the weekend, um, that, that 11 years ago, God made a way for our family to take a leap to move to this very affordable city. We were sent out by Cornerstone Church, and Pastor Bill Kynes, who just prayed over us, a blessing over us, has been our sending pastor. We saw a core team built from nothing but a dream and an idea. And then a door opened here at Ebenezer United Methodist that just happened because Tommy Davis, the chair of the trustees, was working on the corner sign one day, and we walked by, and he said, you can start next Sunday. And we started on a handshake agreement. Um, we've, it's been a, an incredible blessing for over 10 years now to be in partnership here with Ebenezer. And Jimmy and Marsha, thank you for joining us today. Um, Jimmy, Jimmy Gilchrist is the chair of Ebenezer's trustees and has become a good friend and a surrogate grandfather to many of the Redemption Hill children, staff children. And Marsha, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, we have, over the years, we've baptized more than 60 people and dedicated more than 70 babies. We planted a church in Mexico City that Pastor Chewy led, and he has returned to us. We helped plant two in Belfast. 
We're now working in the Bronx with Matthew's Table and looking in D.C. with Chewy planting again with Iglesia Redención. Um, when we moved to, to D.C., there were no Acts 29 churches in the D.C. metro area, and now there are 15 of us. And Redemption Hill hasn't planted all those directly, but this church has had the opportunity and privilege to bring leadership and coach and be a part of seeing those churches birthed. We've launched more community groups than any of us can count and sent out more high-quality leaders to other churches than we would like to count. (laughs) We've seen a loving church family rally alongside one another through mourning and funerals and loss and celebrations and promotions and job loss and move-ins and move-aways. And I think one of the great evidences of God's grace in this church comes through a simple thing like the RHC bulletin board on CCB. But today, as we, we have the privilege to hear from two men that I love and admire. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain and his brother's is sure. Pastor Bill Kynes, who prayed for us, has been a spiritual father to me and a dear friend. He's shown me how to be a pastor, how to lead and love my family and our church. Now, this morning, we have the privilege to hear from Pastor Ray Ortland as he opens God's word with us. And in, in the hardest stretch of my ministry career, at points when I wasn't sure if I could possibly go on, God used these two men, along with some other friends in my life, to breathe courage into my heart and into Alyssa's. The Christ, in their words, was more certain than in our own hearts at the time. And so I thank God for these men and for the part they've played in Redemption Hill's history. And so we have the privilege to hear from them today. And so would you join me in welcoming Pastor Ray Orland. Chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. And uh, Pastor Rydell, Redemption Hill leaders and members, thank you for the privilege of bringing the gospel to you today. This is a special occasion of Thanksgiving and celebration. Church planting, you are right. Church planting is crazy. It is a high-risk venture. But the Lord has been with you. And through you, The risen Christ has established here a new community, a church where Jesus is present, the gospel is heard, community is experienced, mission is pursued, and nothing in all this world is more important than that. Jesus, the risen Christ, is today building out in this world of exhaustion and death, building out a new world of renewal and refreshment and eternality. 
And Redemption Hill is a prophetic outpost of that new world Jesus is building that will last forever. It's like, Redemption Hill is like the model home of the new neighborhood that's gonna be built. And anybody can come in and see what the future is going to be like and buy in now while there's still time. You're a prophetic presence in a city that needs Jesus. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your prayers, your labors, your faithfulness, your steadiness, your determination, your cheerfulness, everything that makes Jesus obvious in a world that wants to make Jesus obscure. Thank you. Now, at a moment like this, I think the best thing we can do together, giving thanks and praise to God, is to remember and savor uh, and enjoy the beliefs, the beliefs that we most cherish and revere and draw strength from. What matters more than what we own in this world is what we believe about that new world Jesus is building. What we believe defines us most deeply. Here is what Christians do not believe. This is from the brilliant Marilyn Robinson in her book, The Death of Adam. And she articulates well the predominant vibe and ethos and um, perception that we're slogging through every day. This is what we don't believe. She says it well. When a good man or woman stumbles, we say, I knew it all along. When a bad person has a gracious moment, we sneer at the hypocrisy. It's as if there is nothing to mourn or to admire but only a hidden narrative, now and then apparent through the false surface narrative and the hidden narrative, because it is ugly and sinister, is therefore true. Maybe we used to believe that. Maybe that's how we used to see things. We don't anymore. We've come to realize that there is, what she just described is real, but there's, there's something even deeper down underneath that narrative. And that's what we have here in Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 39. The deepest story, when we peel away the layers of our own construction, the meanings that we have put upon our lives, the meanings and assessments we have put upon others, the fraudulent imputations we have sent out into the world from our minds, when those get peeled away by the gospel and the Holy Spirit has mercy on even how we process reality, we begin to see the deepest substratum of reality and it is not 
cynical. It is beautiful. It is the love of God. And because it is the love of God, this deepest reality will endure and prevail. If your heart cherishes Christ as the only hope of the world, you're not crazy. You're locking onto reality. And you as a church will prevail and bring hope to others as you savor and cherish and revere and enjoy these beliefs, these mighty beliefs. So please follow with me as I read Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hmm. If that is true, and it is, then that is the radiant truth, the inspiring truth, the strengthening truth that God has declared. We don't make this up and we don't deserve this, but God declares and reveals the deepest substratum of reality to the undeserving, inviting us in, calling us in. That is the truth on which this church was founded. And with this good news, Redemption Hill will flourish. With this good news, Washington can be redeemed. With this good news, a whole new world will prevail by the power of Christ. And with this good news, you and I can live and die with integrity. By God's grace for his glory, with our heads held high and some spring in our steps, steel in our spine, and sparkle in our eye, we can live and die with honor for his glory. Arms locked with one another. 
letting nothing separate us. And we can live with a, a kind of holy defiance against the darkness and against the cynicism. Now, what is this passage talking about? Obviously, it's talking about the love of God. What is it saying about the love of God? It's saying basically two things. One, God loves us personally. Does God love the whole world globally? Yes, but this is saying more. God holds you in his hands. God is aware. God understands what you're facing. God knows everything you hate about your life, and he joins you in that grief and that sorrow, and he is for you in your life. No matter what you've done or what anyone else has ever done to you, God has made his love for you the overruling reality for you forever. And here is all that God asks of you today. You and I don't have to deserve this. All God asks, all we can do, is to be willing to be loved by Almighty God. He will make sure that he loves out of us everything resistant to his love and that he loves into us everything receptive of his love. We just hand ourselves over to him with all the mess and the regrets and the shame and God says, I will love you forever. God loves us personally so that we can love him personally. The second thing it says, and this is inescapable, God loves you powerfully. God's love is not a weak, pleading love that might or might not work out. If you are in Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. That's astounding because you and I don't deserve that. I sin against his love. I sin against my own conscience. I sin against the obvious teachings of the Bible. I sin when I can even, I'm capable of even making a better choice. I sin against the help of the Holy Spirit and not even that stops God. The love of God is his powerful commitment to us. And there is no equal to the power of God, not even you or me. If you're turning to the Lord Jesus Christ with a willingness to be loved by him, he will love you into heaven. He will love you powerfully. In these verses, Paul asks, four questions about the love of God. Four unanswerable questions to help us think it through. First question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible is not asking who is against us. We, there's a lot against us. I'm against myself. Sometimes you counteract your own best interests. We all do. There's folly inside us. But th there's much in this world that is against us. 
there is this, the Bible's very clear, there's this sort of super genius of an angelic nature named Satan who is against us. And he never sleeps. And he's got, I'm old school, so I'm not thinking of computers, I'm thinking of metal file cabinets with manila file folders like this, see? And down in hell, they've got this huge warehouse with bazillions of metal file cabinets and there's a file there and my name is on it. There's a file there with your name is on it and there's a game plan in that file to bring you down and to bring me down. And he's brilliant. And he's going to lose because God is for you. Take that, Satan, you loser. God is not neutral about you. God does not take a wait-and-see attitude toward you. God is not watching you with negative scrutiny so that he can say, gotcha. God is for you. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. And if you say to me, as I say to myself, but I don't deserve that kind of consideration and care, that to God, that is not a reason not to love you. That is a reason to love you all the more. That is a reason in God's eyes to be your advocate, not your enemy. He is for you. In all that God is doing in the world today, at this very moment, God is thinking of, this is amazing, He's thinking of you. He is arranging reality with your eternal advantage constantly in mind. Here's what I'm trying to say. If God created all things, and he did, then all things have some kind of relationship with God. And if all things have some kind of relationship with God, then all things have some kind of interconnectedness and interrelationship with one another because reality is coherent because God created all things. So, reality is interconnected. So let's just say hypothetically, I don't know what time it is in Paris, France right now, five or six hours ahead of us. So it's Sunday afternoon in Paris. What if right now at this moment, somewhere in Paris, France, a bus is pulling over to the side of the street. There's a bus stop there and some people are getting off the bus and other people are getting on the bus and the bus is continuing on its route. I don't know if that's happening, but it's plausible that it might be, right? Okay, so let's just say for the sake of discussion that that is happening like right now. That mini event over in Paris right now is in the genius of God, the providence of God, the orchestration of God, that little mini event over there is somehow, at some level, uh, along with the 10 bazillion other things God is accomplishing through that bus stop in Paris right now. One thing on God's list about that, his agenda, his purpose, is somehow for that to link back to your reality in Washington, D.C. to help you on your way into more of his love. 
That is the kind of reality. See, if God is for us, it's got to be that way. If I am for you, if you are for me, all bets are off. We mean well. But if God is for us, reality has got to be that way, doesn't it? It only stands to reason. So for you to fall through the cracks and for your future to go poof, God himself would have to fall through the cracks. God himself would have to go poof. So we, we, we sense the confidence and the cheerful defiance in Paul's question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So where did God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The Father gave him up. The Father abandoned him and forsook him. When all our sin was poured out on our substitute, God's Son in our place, God did not rescue him. God forsook him. He cried out in pain, and God didn't listen. He prayed. God didn't answer. That's what happened at the cross. God did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all. Now, here's Paul's question about that. If God made that commitment to us at the cross, how on earth will God hold back now? Will he not, with Jesus, give us all things? If God gave us his most costly gift at the cross in Jesus, is God going to start nickel and diming us now? Is that what we should expect? A reluctant God holding back. How does that make sense? So what's the point? The point is this. If God gave up his son for us all, there is no limit to God's love for us. That really helps because we all wonder how far will God go with me? At what point will God say, really? I mean, I knew this relationship with you was going to be costly, but I mean, come on. What were you thinking? I'm, I, I, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not prepared for that level of commitment. Will God ever say that to you? It is unthinkable. Why? Because we deserve God's best? No, because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that we will never be abandoned. God is as committed to you 
as God is committed to his son because he gave his son for you. If you belong to Jesus, you are in God's love just as solidly and permanently as Jesus is in God's love. And it has nothing to do with your performance or with my performance. It has everything to do with the cross where God declared and sealed his love for you forever at any cost. So I like to say it this way. God is rich with love and God is a big spender. God does not limit his love for you. God unlimits his love for you. We are the ones who love carefully. (laughs) We are the ones who look at one another through a lens of cost-benefit analysis. And we're careful not to let it get out of control or take us us too far. We're, We're looking at our peripheral vision for an exit strategy when we see a high-maintenance person coming our way. I do, and I'm a pastor for crying out loud. (laughs) God, the risen Jesus right now today is brimming with immortal life. He is not tired today, and he is not tired of you. And when he sees you coming for the 19th time on any given day with yet more need, he's not looking for an exit strategy. He lights up. The more need we bring, the more energized he feels. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so grateful. Third question, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. There's a lot of condemning religion in the world, but it doesn't come from Jesus. He does not want you feeling condemned. He wants you feeling released, readmitted, belonging on the inside of things. Now, here's where God, here's the path we get to feeling justified, feeling forgiven, feeling accepted. Okay, I'm an aging 1960s hippie from California, and I'm not sorry. So I think of it in my categories as the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment. Okay, first step on the fourfold path, moral indifference. Life is a playground. You make your own rules. Right and wrong don't matter. All that matters is winning. Moral indifference. Now, some people who live in moral indifference change and they move on to the second step in the fourfold path, moral concern. They move from moral indifference, the bitter aftertaste gets very real. They don't like that anymore, so they move to moral concern. They start caring about the right thing. They start living upright lives. They look back at the people of moral indifference. They don't like what they see. They, 
They're trying to do the right thing now. And by the way, the change from moral indifference to moral concern is not a Christian conversion. It is socially beneficial, but it's not a Christian conversion. So some of the people in moral concern move on to the, th the third step, and that is moral despair, because they fail. They discover that virtue is not as simple as a raw choice or a resolve. They crash. They discover they're not moral people. Their habits, passions, background, temptations are too strong. And when we face ourselves honestly, we do discover moral despair, don't we? So, fourthly, some moral failures, hearing the gospel, a new thought enters in. They look beyond themselves, and here's what they discover. Fourth step, hope in Christ. Moral indifference, moral concern, moral despair, crash and burn, hope in Christ. The gospel surprises them. The gospel says God loves moral failures. God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God justifies moral failures who come to Christ, and he pronounces them righteous. They are now righteous failures. And because it is, here's Paul's point, because it is God who justifies them, no one can de-justify them. There's no Supreme Court above God to reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn now, here's what everybody in the world needs to know today. That God is like this. That God receives the unworthy through Christ and for his sake. So the people in moral indifference really do need to wake up. And the people in moral concern, it's hard to say, but failing will help if they keep going. The people in despair need to know what a friend we have in Jesus. And the people who've put their hope in Christ, we need to throw our heads back and laugh the laugh of faith, defying everything that's against us, including us. So, because it says God chose sinners as his elect. He wasn't stuck with us. He got first dibs. And he chose us. He didn't choose the good people. He chose the bad people because his deepest purpose is to show to the whole universe that Jesus is a world-class savior of hopeless cases. So, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's already final between the Father and the Son. Therefore, your worst sin, your deepest, most bitter regret that haunts you in your memory and grieves you and wounds you to this day, that sin cannot keep you from God if you hand it over to Jesus because God's whole point is to let Jesus shine as the Savior of the worst so, whatever that is for you that so troubles you deep within, you can bring that. You can bring it all. You can bring your worst. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father for you.
Now, Martin Luther uh, was very wise. He knew the troubles of conscience. And here's how he advised us to fight back when conscience wants to overrule God our judge who justifies us. Conscience, that crazy accusing voice within, wants to say, no, God is wrong. The gospel's wrong. Jesus didn't die for you, not for that. So you need to listen to me, you, and, and despair. Okay, what do we say then? Martin Luther, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say, I am a sinner, with your own sword, I will cut your throat, for Christ died for sinners. And as often as you object that I am a sinner, that often you remind me of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So devil, when you say I am a sinner, you don't scare me. You comfort me immeasurably. <laughs> That's how we'd fight. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul takes a good hard look with utter realism at everything against us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. The gospel is not an ideal we hope might be true. The gospel goes with us into the worst that this life shoves down our throat and speaks to us there about the love of God. These horrible experiences that we have, that we do have, Do these experiences prove that God no longer loves us? No. Paul comes up with this list of sufferings in verse 35. And that is life for people God loves. Jesus himself entered into it and walked with us through it. He himself suffered these things. He did not exempt himself. He has right now vivid personal memories of everything you're suffering. Look at verse 36. For your sake, that is because we're following Jesus, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's amazing imagery. The world as one vast slaughterhouse. That is not a pretty picture. It is true to life, isn't it? Verse 37, but in all these things, not in some, but in all, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So how are we more than conquerors? I think he means this. We go through living hell. And it's not so much our love for God, but his love for us that just hangs on. 
And he somehow, we don't even understand, he somehow gets us through that. We come out eventually the other side and look back. And rather than hate God, we actually love him more deeply. We believe more deeply in his love for us. The gospel is only more real to us, more sacred to us, more precious to us, more than before we had suffered. That's how we are more than conquerors. So we get totally body slammed and we pick ourselves back up again and we say, I, I have no idea what just happened to me. That was horrible. I hope it never happens again, but the one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. God the love of God for me declared in Christ, proven in Christ, sustaining me right now, even the reason why I'm having this conversation with myself is, can only be accounted for by the fact that God is here right now supporting me by his love. So his love for me is the bedrock underneath my shaky feet. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and find out how God is going to redeem this mess because he will. And then we go do the next right thing. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God helping us along right in the midst. We are so not victims. The deepest reality that we now believe down underneath everything else is the personal and powerful love of God for us. Our sufferings are not robbing us our sufferings are taking us deeper into the love of God. They always will. Whatever the future holds for you, for me, the one thing we know about it is this. God's going to be there. He will welcome me into each moment with his arms open, his favor upon me, his plan for me, his attention to me, and I will stumble into one more moment of the love of God after another, no matter what else happens, at a less profound level of my being. That's what we believe. Redemption Hill, God bless you.